You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20, so if you want to go ahead and grab a Bible and turn to Exodus 20, that would be really helpful. And you might also mark in your Bible Genesis chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 5 for easy access. Um, you're going to need to turn to both of those places, and so it would be helpful if you had that marked where you could get to that um, really easily and quickly. So Exodus chapter 20, Matthew chapter 5, and Genesis chapter 2. Now, while you're doing that, let me just kind of lead in to where we are today. If you've stumbled in this morning, you have found yourself in a set of sermons through the Ten Commandments, and we are to Commandment 7. So Commandment 7 is the one we're going to be addressing and working kind of through and on today. Now, let me lead in to Commandment 7 and kind of where I think the Lord would have us go today by, uh, by just kind of giving a snapshot of my own life, and, and especially life working inside the church in, in, in ministry. I started work inside the church about a decade and a half ago. And it's amazing for me to look back at, if somebody were to ask me, what are your hopes and dreams for your life? What are you asking God to do with your life? It's like, what are those at the core kind of, that make up just the substance of your dreams and aims and hopes? What are those? And, you know, if you'd have asked me that on my, like, coming into ministry years, I would have answered much differently than I would answer today. So, you know, if you'd have asked me a decade and a half ago, like, what are your hopes and dreams and all that? It would have sounded fairly decent, but, but here would have been the flavoring of what I would have responded to you in. Now, I, I came into ministry work in student ministry, and so it would have had a student ministry flavor to it. But I would have said something like this. Man, there are kids that need to be rescued in this area. There are kids that need to meet Jesus in this area. And I'm praying that God would do that, that God would save and rescue um, through through this ministry and through what I'm doing here. And, uh, you know, I pray that these kids would grow up to to love Jesus, to live for Jesus. I pray that God would be, you know, begin to to work into them a call and kind of an affirmation of, of missionaries that would be raised up out of this ministry, of church planters that would be raised up out of this ministry. I'm praying that God would create good godly dads, you know, down the road from this ministry, good godly moms out of this ministry, doctors, nurses, every little profession that you can think of, that there would be people coming out of this ministry who love Jesus doing all of those sorts of things. Now, you know, I, even in the early days of ministry, I, I thought that God was leading me toward church planting at some point, so I would have had a little flavor of that in there. The man, I, I was longing for that already, praying for that, that God would, would create a group of people called a church that would be on his mission, that, that this group of people would be that sort of a group, that, man, they would be willing to charge the gates of hell together trying to rescue all of those that are kind of on the, the path toward hell, trying to rescue those people by God's grace and bring them out of that. Now, I would have been praying for all of those sorts of things on the front end of ministry. Now, when I think about how I would answer the same question today, it's just, it's amazing to me how much more simple it is. It's not less than those things, but I, I would say the core of what I would be asking God for, the, the core of what I would be begging God to do would just be a little bit different. Not less than, but the core has definitely begun to, to be more simple in my life. So I think if I were to compare like what, what I would be asking for now from God, what I was asking for then, what, you know, the difference between those two, and, and, and by the way, have you ever looked back at like that decade and a half version of yourself and just thought, what an idiot? What, what is wrong with that person? Have you ever, and that's kind of scary looking forward in your life, knowing that the decade and a half kind of future version of you is going to be looking at yourself like that right now. 
But when I look back at that, that version of me a decade and a half ago, when I think about what I was asking God for, what was at the core of my concerns for like life and ministry and aims and hopes and dreams, I assumed way too much. I had way too many assumptions working at, at that point. My, my assumptions went like this. Um, God, do all of these things because I'm assuming that in 30 or 40 years from now, I'm actually still going to be loving Jesus and I'm still going to be loving my wife. I'm assuming all of that to where now, if you were to ask me right now, what is your hope for your life? It's not less than all of these other things, these hopes and ambitions for ministry, but it's definitely much more than that. The center has been clarified. My number one answer now is, when I take my last breath, like when I'm about to die, it's the last breath I've got, I want, and I'm just praying and pleading with God to give me this. And when I you know, take that last breath, that I can honestly say that I still love Jesus and I still love my wife. I want to be able to say that. And the reason that I no longer assume that is because I've been in ministry you know, a decade and a half. And I've seen that assuming that is a bad assumption. I've seen that assuming that just because you start out loving Jesus, that you're going to end loving Jesus, it doesn't always work that way. A decade and a half of ministry has shown me, if you think of it in the, in the, you know, in the terms of the parable of the, the soils, do you remember that parable? Where you've got some gospel seed that gets sown into rocky soil, it springs up and it looks so good. It looks like an authentic Jesus-loving plant or person. But yet here comes the sun, that's trials and tribulation in that parable, and all of a sudden that plant that looked, or that person that looked so good, wilts away, withers away, and no longer has a deep and abiding love for Jesus. And I, in 15, you know, roughly 15 years of ministry, I've just seen that play out enough to no longer assume that in 15 years from now, or in 20 years from now, or in 30 years from now, or 40 years from now, that I'm actually going to love Jesus. So I'm actually praying and pleading with God that, God, when I take my last breath, will you please, by your grace, help me be able to say that I still love you? And the same is true with marriage. 15 years of ministry has shown me that assuming that I'm going to love my wife in 15 years from now is a bad assumption. It's just a bad assumption. At the end of the day, the first day of your wedding, or the first day of your, your marriage, your, you know, your wedding, is an important day, but it's not the most important day. The most important day is not your first day of your marriage, but the last day of your marriage. And I've just seen too many examples of a great first day and a really, really bad and terrible last day. I mean, who starts out their, their you know, marriage thinking, you know what, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna get before God and other people and I'm gonna say, I'm gonna be committed to this person for the rest of my life, but in 10 years from now, I'm gonna bail. Nobody walks into marriage thinking in five years from now or 10 years from now or 20 years from now, I'm going to walk out of this marriage. Nobody comes into it thinking that. Yet that story happens over and over and over and over again. It's a really bad assumption to think in 15 years from now, 20, 30 years from now, I'm going to be loving my spouse like I should. It's just a bad assumption. So the center has clarified for me. The government, my last breath, I want to be able to say I still love Jesus. I still love my wife. And the seventh commandment gives us some space to think about those important things. It gives us some space to think through what, what it means to love our wife, what it means to love our husband, what it means to be faithful in a marriage. It gives us time to think that through. So here we are in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, the seventh commandment. Real simple, honest, abrupt, five words in the English language. 
you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. That's the seventh commandment. Now, before we tackle this text, I, I want to just invite you in to praying for our, like this group of people right now as we begin to listen to, to this. Um, because if you can just feel with me the complexity of this room when it comes to just reading those five words, it, it's staggering. So some people in this room are hard-hearted in their sin and adultery. They're, they're in that place, and what they need from the Spirit of God today is for the Spirit of God to come into their heart and plow up hard ground. Others in the room are very repentant and sorrowful about their, their former, former sin. And what they need today is not for the Spirit to come in and plow all of this hard ground in their heart. They need the Spirit of God to come in and to repair ground that's already been broken up. And then on the other side of that, you've got people in this room that just reading this bring back you know, memory of all this sin that was done against them. So you can just see how complex preaching is and how messy preaching is and how dependent we all are upon the Spirit of God this morning to personally apply what it is that we need today from God. So I want to invite you to be praying for that for this room. Now, in light of that, I'm going to come at this from, from three different angles. You shall not commit adultery. I'm going to come at this from three different angles, and I hope, by God's grace, make sense of the seventh commandment with you. So here is the first one, the command's context. If we're ever going to see the seventh commandment rightly, we first have to see how God views marriage. So you have to see marriage from God's perspective, you have to see marriage rightly before you're ever going to see the seventh commandment rightly. So in order to do that, let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. So if you want to turn back to Genesis chapter 2, that would be really helpful. Starting in verse 18. Genesis 2, verse 18. The Bible says this. <clears throat> Genesis 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he, was at, and while he slept, uh, the Lord took one of his ribs and closed up its place with, with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were, both, and were not ashamed. Now, there is way more in this passage that we're going to be able to address this morning, but let me just point out two broad kind of things I want you to see here. And here's the first one. This passage clearly shows us that marriage is the doing of God. It shows us that marriage is, is not a human invention, it's God's invention. It didn't come from the imagination of man, it came from the imagination of God. God is the one who created marriage. He is the one behind marriage. He's the reason that we have such a thing called marriage. It is God's doing. Now you see this throughout the passage. Now look at all the things that God does in this passage. It's God who, who recognizes that there's not a helper fit for Adam. That there's no suitable helper for Adam. 
It's God who declares it is not good for Adam to be alone in this passage. It's God who gives Adam an ambient, right? Puts Adam to sleep, breaks off a rib, and who makes woman. It's God who does that. It's God who now acting as the woman's father, um, takes her by the arm and walks her down the aisle and presents her to Adam. It's God then who turns around and no longer as father now, but as a good pastor, officiates the first wedding for Adam and Eve. It's God who is doing all of that. It's God who makes one man and one woman and brings them together as one flesh and creates marriage. It's all the doing of God. From beginning to end, marriage is the doing of God. But that's not the only thing we see in this passage. It's one thing. Marriage is the doing of God, but it's not the only thing. Marriage is for, here's the second thing. Marriage is for the display of God. It's not only God who creates marriage. God has created marriage for specific purposes. And the biggest thing we can say about those purposes is that it is for the display of God. Now, you see this played out in verse 24. So Adam and Eve, our first parents, their whole marriage ceremony just happened. God has just pronounced over them, husband and wife. The narrator of Genesis pauses now and personally applies that marriage to all of us. And here's what he says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, this is walking us into the unique relationship that is marriage. Marriage is this relationship where a man and a woman will leave their parents. They're going to they're leave that relationship, and now they're going to hold fast. They're going to cleave together in a new relationship. And this new relationship is going to be the most important earthly relationship that they have. There will not be one relationship on planet Earth that's going to be more important than this unique relationship. And then God takes these two distinct people, and he joins them together and makes them one flesh. Now, that one flesh union that's happening there is a foreshadowing of God. It's, it's a picture of God. It's showing us something about God. God. It's a shadow of God. In the Bible, God is presented as three distinct persons. Each distinct person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are each fully called God in the, in the Bible. They're all recognized as God. Those three distinct persons, each one fully God, yet these three distinct persons in the Bible, it says this repeatedly, that those three distinct persons are one God. Three distinct people, Distinct persons making up the Godhead, but yet you have one God. And marriage is showing us something about that person of God, the, the, the Trinitarian nature of God. When we see two distinct people come together in marriage and now God makes them one flesh. They're one emotionally. They're one spiritually. They're one physically. They're one financially. They're one in every sense of the word. That is showing us something about God. Then you get to verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now that's a foreshadowing of our relationship with God. Think about what marriage is like. If you are married in the room, you know this about your marriage. Your spouse knows things about you that no one else knows. They know things about you that you would not want anyone else to know. See, marriage is meant to be that place where you can be absolutely naked. In other words, completely exposed and vulnerable. You can be absolutely known, no part of you hidden, and yet at the same time fully accepted by that spouse. That's what marriage is meant to be. And that is a foreshadowing of, of what, what our relationship with Jesus is supposed to be, what our relationship with God is supposed to be. That because of Jesus, we can be fully known by God. See, marriage is just a snapshot. It's just a shadow of this. That what it's ultimately pointing to is that in Christ, we can be fully known by God and yet at the same time fully accepted and fully loved by God. 
See, marriage is the image of that. It's showing us that. It's the shadow of those things. See, when it comes to marriage, we could say a lot about the purposes of God in marriage, but the biggest thing we could say, the ultimate thing we could say, is that marriage is a metaphor. Marriage is a metaphor of the good news of Jesus. Marriage is designed by God, created by God to display, put on display for for human beings to see, for the world to see what his covenant love for his sons and daughters look like. That's what marriage is meant to show. Now think on that for a second. Don't Don't just run by that. Your marriage is meant to say something to the world about God, and it's meant to say something to the world about the good news of Jesus. Your marriage is meant to be a living, breathing illustration of these things. So if you're a man and you're married, okay, if you're not married and you want to be someday, you need to know this about marriage. If you're a man and you're marriage, here is what your role in your marriage ultimately is. Your role is to tell the truth about God in the way that you would sacrificially love your wife, sacrificially lay down your life for your wife, initiate, pursue with a never-ending sort of love. In the way that you would do that with your wife, you are showing a picture of the world about Jesus. And for the same thing, if you're a lady in the room and you're married, or you one day want to be, a woman in marriage has the unique opportunity given to them by God to show a picture to the world of what it looks like for the church to respond to the initiating and pursuing love of God for them in Jesus in the way that they respond to their husband. Do you see how that plays out? A man and woman in a marriage have the unique opportunity to show man, the relationship of of Jesus coming after and pursuing the woman, the the relationship of the church responding and and following the lead of Jesus. That's what marriage is for. Okay, now if you're married, I want you to look at me real quick, if you're married. If you are married, you are caught up in something that is much bigger than you ever realized. Marriage is much bigger than your little life It's much bigger than your little marriage. Marriage, if you're married, you're ultimately caught up in a story that is meant to tell the truth about God. See, there's only one thing your marriage cannot do. The one thing your marriage cannot do is say nothing. Every marriage says something. And here are the two options for your marriage and my my marriage. If you're a future marriage, here's the two options for a marriage. Here are the two things that it can say. One, it can tell the truth about God. When a husband and wife are faithful to one another, they love one another, they lay down their life for one another, they keep at it with one another. When, when, when that's happening, it's telling the truth about God. It's saying, do you see how God has loved us in Jesus? This is a faithful representation of that. It can tell the truth about that, or our marriage is going to lie about that. See, it's going to say something It's either going to lie about the good news of Jesus and say to the world, you see the good news of Jesus? That's nothing but a sham. It's going to do that or it's going to tell the truth about the good news of Jesus. But the one thing it cannot do is say nothing. It's always going to say one of those two things in the way that we're loving and interacting with our spouses. Okay, now that's the positive force of of the seventh commandment. On a positive level, it is protecting marriage. It is lifting up the sanctity of marriage and how seriously God views marriage. That's the positive force of this commandment. And now that we have that clarified, the context of marriage is around the seventh commandment. Now we can jump in and and try to to work through the commandment. This is the commandment clarified. What is it that that the Lord is saying in the seventh commandment? What is is the Lord getting after in the seventh commandment? What is he prohibiting in the seventh commandment? And let me come at this from two different um, angles, 
two different kind of categories. When, when he says you shall not commit adultery, I think that he's talking about two different categories of prohibitions. And here's the first category. We might call this adultery with the hands. This is the physical act of adultery. This is one of the categories that the Lord is addressing in the seventh commandment. So by definition, here's what adultery is. It's when you know, two people, a man and a woman, get together, and before God and before one another, friends and family, they say, I am in for life here. I'm going to love you for better or for worse. But then adultery is the moment when one of those breaks trust in their marriage and, and joins in a one flesh way with someone that is not their spouse. That's adultery. It's sexual sin that breaks the bonds of marriage. Now that's, in a narrow sense, that is what this commandment is dealing with. Now inside of that, there's a lot of other sexual sin that we could talk about that would be prohibited, that, that are external actions that you're actually physically doing that would be prohibited in the seventh commandment. Things like fornication, that would be sex, that would be sex for people who are not married. So, so fornication. Um, prostitution would be prohibited in the seventh commandment. Practicing homosexuality would be prohibited in the seventh commandment. All, all forms of sexual violence would be prohibited in, this, in the seventh commandment. So that's rape, that's incest, that's pedophilia, that's sexual abuse within marriage. All of those things would be prohibited in the seventh commandment. Now, I, I wanted to spend a moment in trying to bring appropriate weightiness to the seventh commandment. God is not playing games in any of the commandments, but in particular the seventh commandment. He takes the seventh commandment very, very, very seriously. Now, to try to get you acclimated to the biblical language for how serious God takes it, let me just work through the picture of the Old Testament and how serious, New Testament and how serious, and then God's eternal kingdom and how serious. In the Old Testament, here was the penalty for adultery. The penalty for adultery was death in the Old Testament. It was a capital offense. In other words, if you got caught in the act of adultery, you were killed in the Old Testament. If you were born a few thousand years ago and you were a Jewish person and you were found in, you know, in the act of adultery, it went bad for you in a hurry. That's Leviticus 20 uh, verse 10. In the New Testament, the, the penalty for adultery is it's grounds for divorce. It's potentially grounds for divorce in the New Testament. This is Matthew 19, uh, verse 9. And then when you look forward into God's eternal kingdom, so Old Testament, it's death. New Testament, it's possibly grounds for divorce. In God's eternal kingdom, it's damnation. Now that's how serious God is about this. This should be on the screen for you. It's 1 Corinthians 6, um, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Listen to what it says. Or do you not know, this is the idea of in God's eternal kingdom, the, 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 the penalty for adultery being damnation. Paul says it like this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. See, God is not playing games here. God is deathly serious about the seventh commandment. Deathly serious. And, and the truth is, you know, when I look at verse, uh, you know, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, there are many who are just deceived about the seriousness of adultery. Our culture treats adultery with, with a, it's kind of an okay sort of a way. The vibe in our culture is, yeah, I mean, it's serious, but it's, it's okay. It's not that serious. We, we live in a cultural haze when it comes to the seventh commandment. 
And if you want to see just evidence of this, just think about this. We actually have a website that people can go to called ashleymadison.com where it is built for married people to go to to find other people that they can commit adultery with. The whole premise of the website is a place for if you're married, come here. We'll hook you up with a person who you can go have sex with that is not your spouse. And there's 21 million users. 21 million. This just helps us see the cultural haze that we have when it comes to the seventh commandment. It's crazy. The whole tagline to to AshleyMadison.com, here's their tagline. Life is short, have an affair. And the executives of this, when they were brought on the news to kind of talk about it, they, they would actually have the audacity to make the case that they're actually helping marriages, not hurting them. That, that is what you call being deceived. It is craziness. And this is the culture that you and I live in. Now answer the question. Let's ask it and answer it. Why is adultery such a big deal to God? Why is the seventh commandment such a big issue to God? And the answer to that is because marriage is such a big deal at God. And because marriage is such a big deal to God, adultery that comes and rips at the fabric of marriage is a big deal to God. Adultery who deforms the metaphor of marriage to to tell a lie about God, to tell a lie about the good news of Jesus, that's a big deal to God. Do you see how that works? It's because marriage is so sacred to God that adultery is so grievous to God. Adultery is telling the world that God's covenant love for us in Jesus is a sham. It's telling the world that it's a lie, that this is not the way that God loves the world. It's not this sort of all-encompassing, faithful, never-stopping love. That's, that's not how God loves us. That's the reason that it's such a big deal to God. Now, I want to take a 90-second rabbit trail here, so I want you to clue in on this, because I am un- uncomfortable with how the church has traditionally talked about sex. So I'm on a 90-second rabbit trail to clarify a few of the things I'm uncomfortable with. And here is the main thing that that I want to clarify for us in the room. God, therefore, the seventh commandment that is expressing the will of God for us, God is not anti-sex. And I think if you were just raised in a church, listening to how church culture kind of, you know, deals with sex, listening to even how your family probably dealt with sex growing up, It was as if this is a taboo thing that cannot be talked about. I mean, it's something that people do, but it's kind of just dirty enough to where nobody talks about it. That is not the way the Bible addresses sex. God is not anti-sex. God actually created it. God created marriage, and he created something to go inside the confines of marriage called sex for the good of the husband and the wife. God is not anti-sex. If you read the song, I mean, just... How about we could say it this way? Read the Song of Solomon and you're going to see that he is not anti-sex. That book is crazy. It would make us all blush periodically. And that's God behind that. So I I just want to clarify that these are good things. And listen, parents, if your ethic in your house is, it's just kind of dirty and weird enough that we're not going to talk about it. Can I just say who is going to talk about it? All of of the friends of your children. They're going to talk about it. Your kids are going to talk about it with someone. And either they learn about this from you or they learn about it in a locker room. You take your pick. 
I think we've got an obligation to make sure that we teach on these things. Our churches teach a robust theology about these things. As parents, that we do a good job of teaching a robust theology. And that theology starts with this. This is not a dirty thing. This is a God-given thing. And, and sex, this good thing, I think if you want an image of it, I think this is a good image. Sex is like a raging river. I mean, just picture a river that is swollen. It's got a lot of water coming down through it. It is powerful. It is all of those things. I think that's a good image for sex. See, the reason that the seventh commandment is in the Bible is not because sex is bad, but because sex is such a powerful force for good. So you've got a raging river that is sex. Now, as long as that raging river stays within the banks, that river is a great thing, isn't it? It's a powerful force for good. It does a lot of good for a lot of different things. And the banks of that river, God is clear on this. The banks of the river is marriage. One man, one woman who come together and say to one another, for the rest of our lives we are in. I'm gonna love you until death do us part. That's the banks of the river. But this good thing that God created, if it swells past those banks and, and comes over the edge of the banks, now what happens? everything gets destroyed, doesn't it? Damage on a epic scale happens when, when that water gets out of the banks of the river. Now, now that's, that's where you start with the teaching of, of sex. This is a good thing. It is a powerful force from good as long as we keep it in the banks. You get it outside the bank, everything starts to get destroyed. So if we don't start thinking about it that way, if we don't teach it that way, we're, we're gonna do a lot of damage to our kids. We're going to do a lot of damage to a culture who is very interested in the topic, right? So we, we've got an obligation to make sure we're thinking about it in a rich, robust way. So that's adultery in the hands. But that's not the only thing that this commandment addresses. This commandment addresses much more. The reach of this commandment goes much more than adultery in the hands, our physical actions. And it goes to all, all the way inside of us to adultery in the heart. Now, this is where Matthew 5 is helpful for us. It's going to show us that adultery is not just an issue of the hands, it's an issue of the heart. And before it ever makes its way to the hands, it has already been happening in the heart. So here's how Jesus addresses this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And now watch what Jesus does with the seventh commandment. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Not in his hands, but in his heart. You see what he just did there? He took the seventh commandment and widened it. He's showing that the reach of the seventh commandment. Now, remember the context of Matthew 5. Matthew 5 is written to some religious leaders who are very self-righteous. The religious leaders who, this is their approach to, to the seventh commandment. They're, they're looking at their life and they're thinking this. Man, look at me. I'm awesome because I've kept the seventh commandment. Check that one off. And at the same time as they're beating their breasts, applauding themselves for being awesome, they're looking down their nose at all the people who have broken the seventh commandment, treating them as if they're in a different category of, of person. These are the nasty ones. How dare them? These are the defiled ones. How dare them? He's addressing that crowd. And into that crowd, he is making it known that if, if that's your feeling, if, if your feeling when you read the seventh commandment is, man, look at how awesome I am and look at how bad all those people are. He's saying, if, if, that's, your, if that's the way you're approaching the seventh commandment, here's what it's showing about you. You have no idea what the seventh commandment teaches and you have no idea how far sin goes in you. That's, that's the point he is trying to make in Matthew 5 here. 
He's trying to show them that you're not nearly as good as you think and sin goes much deeper in you than you think. He's making the point that keeping the seventh commandment goes much further than our hands. It goes all the way in our hearts. And he's showing us that adultery can happen in our hearts. He's showing us how the, the reach of this commandment. He's showing us here that a lustful thought is breaking the seventh commandment just like you in a marriage becoming one flesh with someone that is not your wife, not your husband. He's showing us that both of those are breaking the seventh commandment. Adultery in, in the heart and adultery in the hands. That you're breaking the seventh commandment with both of those things. Now, let me just bring some clarity to this. When we talk, Jesus is saying in, in this moment that, that adultery in the heart and adultery in the hands are of the same quality. In other words, the same substance is in both. It's the same quality, that the same thing that's in us that makes us look at a person lustfully is the same thing in us that makes us violate a one flesh union in a physical sort of a way. It's the same substance, it's the same quality, but he's not saying they're of the same, you know, quantity. That there is a difference between the two. Over here, adultery in the heart is adultery in seed form. It's like it's just sprouted up in our life and it's beginning to take form in our life. Adultery in the hands over here is adultery in full-grown tree form. Over here in the heart, it's seed. Over here in, in, in the hands, it's full-grown. The tree has sprouted in our life. It's a mature tree. It's bloomed and blossomed and it is firmly planted in our life. So they're of the same quality, but the quantity is different. Quantitatively, he's talking about a different thing. We can address these two things in a different way. Same quality, different quantity. Now, what is prohibited in the seventh commandment in, as far as adultery with the heart? Adultery in the, with the heart would cover all of these sorts of things. Emotional affairs. You, you flirting with a person that's not your wife, not your husband. You, you growing an emotional attachment there. You looking to that person to satisfy some of the needs of your heart. Much of that happening in a secretive sort of a way. That is prohibited in the seventh, that is breaking the seventh commandment. It addresses your thought life. It addresses fantasies. It addresses imaginations that are going crazy. It, it addresses what happens to a lot of ladies as they're reading romance novels. It's addressing all of that and saying that is a breaking of the seventh commandment. Lingering and lustful looks are a breaking of the seventh commandment. Pornography is a breaking of the seventh commandment. All of those deformed things in us, that is a breaking of the seventh commandment. Okay, now I want to spend the rest of our time, the, the next 10 or so minutes, trying to apply the seventh commandment. What does this mean for us? How do we get this on the ground and applied into your life and my life? And I want to try to do this with a couple of questions and we'll end with one statement. And here's question number one. How is your marriage? I want you just to take a moment to think about your marriage. I want you to ask the question, how, how would I... How would I evaluate our marriage? How is our marriage doing? Now, in this moment, it's always, been, it's always been interesting for me to watch the grid that many people use to evaluate their marriage. And here's the grid many people use. They look at their marriage, they look around, and they think this. Are there any, like, raging fires right now? Okay, there's no raging fires, so our marriage is good. I want to state the obvious. If you're looking around at your marriage and... You're, you're not seeing any raging fires right now, here's what that means. There's just not a raging fire. That's all it means. It doesn't mean your marriage is good, right? See, the grid goes like this for your marriage when you're evaluating. It's not, 
Is, is the house burning down right now? That's not the, the grid. The grid is if you're a husband, am I loving my wife in a way that would, would tell the world a true picture about how Jesus has loved me? Am I loving my family like that? Am I loving my spouse like that? If you're a lady, it's asking the question, am I loving my husband in such a way that it tells an accurate picture of how the church should be responding to the initiating love of Jesus? Am I telling the truth about those things? And if your answer to that is yes, then great. But if your answer to that is no, then, then your marriage is far from where God would want it to be right now. It's not flourishing in the sense of God, where, where God would want it to flourish and how God would want it to flourish. And it's always interesting for me to watch how, and, and this is one of the most things I fear as a pastor, and it's one of the most frustrating things for me as a pastor, how in a moment like this, God is imparting divine grace for every marriage in the room. A moment to stop and think about your marriage. And this is what so often happens in so many people in a moment like this. Because of our pride, we, we, we look at our marriage and we know there's issues. We know that not all things are as they should be. We know there's friction in these places. We know there's, there's things that are, are off in our marriage, things off in me, things off in, in, in them. We know that those things exist, but because of our pride, we just sit here in a moment like this and we're gonna walk out of this room and we're not gonna do anything about it. We, we know there's a crack in our marriage, but we're gonna stick our head in the sand, pretend like that crack doesn't exist. Can I just tell you what happens with cracks in a marriage? Cracks in a marriage over time don't just disappear. You would be a fool to think they just, they just kind of go away one day. They don't just go away one day. They actually have to be addressed to go away one day. So if you're here and you think, man, I know I've got a crack in my marriage, but I'm not going to go on the stick my head in the sand that's going to go away someday. Just know it's not going to go away someday. That crack is eventually going to turn into a large crevice. And depending on how large that crevice gets, your marriage may implode into that crevice. That's where cracks go. So please don't be a fool who would say this morning and just let your pride grip you so hard this morning that you would say, I know there's issues, but I'm just not going to do anything about it. I'm just going to act like they're going to go away. Don't do that. Please, by God's grace, don't do that. This morning will be a wonderful morning for you to repent of, of what needs to be owned in your marriage, for you to return to Jesus. And listen, for you to get what your issues are out in the light. But I, I'm going I'm to beg you. Don't leave this room, if you know there's issues, don't leave this room without someone else other than you and your spouse knowing that. We'll have people at the prayer table set up, come and tell me, come and tell one of ours. Please don't leave this room without telling someone about that. Now, one, one more thing as it relates to marriage. There are some in this room right now and you are on the cliff one step away from falling to your death in an affair, in adultery, adultery of the hands. Adultery of the heart has already happened. You're, you're already down the road. You're already flirting in ways you shouldn't be flirting. You're already emotionally connected to this person in ways that you shouldn't be connected to. They're not your, your spouse. And you are one breath away from adultery in the hands. Now, I want everyone in here to look at me right in the eyes for a moment. This moment right here is divine grace for you. God has created a moment right now for you to get out of the haze that you have been living in, thinking this is okay, thinking that no one will be hurt, thinking this is a safe thing, thinking you have it under control, thinking oh, this is a moment where God brings you out of the haze and clearly says to you, that is sin. 
that needs to be repented of. Not one more day does that go on. This is divine grace. And this moment could rescue and save multiple marriages in this room this morning from absolutely imploding. From things happening that will so severely cut the covenant nature of your marriage that it will be beyond repair. This is divine grace to stop that. And can I just plead with those in the room who, you know that you right now. You know that you are on the cliff right now. There is inappropriate things all about your life right now. I mean, this is divine grace from, from keeping you from going over the ledge, from falling off the, the cliff. Can I just plead with you right now to listen to the Spirit's voice in you? Right now to repent of that, right now to say to yourself, I am not leaving this room without getting other people in the know on that, without walking in the light in this area. I just want to plead with you, please don't live another day in the dark in that. So how's your marriage? That's question one. Here's question two. How's the purity in your life right now? Let me just go ahead and ask it this way. I want to just nail down just a really precise way of going about this one. Let me just ask it like this. Are you consistently looking at pornography? And if, you, if you're saying right now, my answer is no, I'm not consistently looking at pornography. I haven't looked at it in like five days. If that's you, your answer is yes. It's not no. And here's the truth. If I slid a piece of paper in front of everyone in this room and we looked at the last 30 days of your life and, and asked the question, what, what does pornography look like in your life? I think we would see that the overwhelming majority of people in this room, male and female, have a serious issue with pornography. That it's not an out there thing, it's an in this room right now thing. That it's here, lustful thoughts, pornography, it is here in this room right now. And I'm going to ask all of our home group leaders, if you lead a home group at Stonegate, to over the next two weeks, to, to make sure you ask this question to everyone in your home group. Is pornography an issue right now? Are you consistently looking at pornography? What, what does it look like? I, I'm just under the assumption that it's not a question of if you're struggling. It's a question of how is it manifesting itself right now for you? And I want to ask all of our home group leaders to ask that question in our home groups. And here is my assumption. When a lot of us ask that question and, and we're asked that question and we answer honestly, here's going to be many of our responses. It doesn't look good. It's ugly what this looks like in my life right now. And if that's you, I, I want to just start to give like some sort of a pathway. Like what does moving forward look like in that? And the first thing that we could say, and by the way, I'm not going to say everything that needs to be said, but I'm going to say a couple of things. The first thing that needs to be said, the, fir the first way out of, of any sin in our life is repentance. Some of us need to pray right now that God would gift us with tears for this particular sin. That it would produce in us a sorrow that we would start to see and grieve over this particular sin like God sees it and like God grieves it. That we'd begin to see it like God sees it. That we would have tears of repentance begin to flow out of our life. That there would be genuine, authentic repentance where we're turning from our sin and we're turning back to Jesus, the only one who can ultimately satisfy our soul. That that, that moment would happen even right now. If you're here right now and you're like, man, this is an issue. I have an issue with this. These deformed desires in me are ruling me in some ways. The first, the first response is repentance. Turning from sin, turning to Jesus. And, and here's the second thing that I just want to throw out to all of us in the room. Is after repentance, 
And here's really the fruit of repentance, that we begin to take extreme measures in our life with fighting pornography and fighting sexual sin. I'm talking extreme measures. No half measures, but extreme measures. Now, I want to read for you one more time what, what Jesus says in Matthew 5. We read the first two verses a minute ago. I want to read the next two verses to you. This is Matthew 5, verse 27 through 30. Jesus said, we read this a moment ago. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now here's the next two verses. So let, let, let's just assume that's happening. It, right now it's in your life. We've repented and now watch the next thing Jesus says. If that's present in our life, look at what he says next. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear out your right eye and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut your right hand off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He is using graphic and, and just a gory metaphor to show us how serious all sin is, namely this one. Lust in our heart, pornography, these sorts of sins. He's using graphic, just a graphic metaphor to show us the sort of measures that we should deal with this sin with. He, he's looking at us and he's saying this. If, if you've got a problem with your eyes, here's what you should do. Here's the metaphor. Gouge out your eye. Why? Because it is far better for you to go the rest of your days without one of your eyes than for you to be thrown into hell with both. That's how serious this is. And he says, if you've got two hands and your right hand's causing you to sin, if it's causing you to, to walk into to sexual immorality, he's saying this, this is how serious that sin is. You should cut your right hand off because here's the thing. You living the rest of your days with an amputated hand is far better than you having both hands and spending all eternity in hell. He's saying that's how serious this is. This is not a joking matter. See, one of the things that drives me crazy is I think this is what happens when in kind of a Christian context, Sin like pornography and sexual immorality is brought up. It, th this is kind of the flow of what happens. Somebody says, man, I'm struggling with this. Somebody else says, man, I'm struggling with this. Somebody else says, man, me too. I guess we're kind of all in this together. I'll kind of rub shoulders with you. You can rub shoulders with me and we'll just kind of go about our day. That is not the approach. What Jesus is doing here is saying, no, I, I get that you're all struggling with it, but here's the next thing that needs to happen. This is not a rub your shoulders and we all just kind of go about our life. This is deathly serious. This is heaven and hell serious. You fighting against these sort of sins in your life is either giving evidence that God has actually changed your heart or it's giving evidence that God has not changed your heart. But it is that deathly serious that we are fighting these things, taking extreme measures with these things, not treating these things as light in our life. John Owen is one of my favorite pastors of a few hundred years ago. I think he has written the gold standard in church history thus far on what it looks like for a Christian to fight sin in their life and to do that really seriously. And listen to part of what he says here. This will be on the screen for you. He says, here are your options. Christian, here, here's your options. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Those are your options. He that stands still and allows his enemies to double blows upon him without resistance will undoubtedly be conquered in the issue. If sin be subtle, which it is, watchful, which sin is, strong, which sin definitely is, and always at work in the business of killing our souls, which that is exactly what sin's trying to do. 
And we, on the other hand, be slothful, negligent, foolish, and in, in proceeding to the ruin thereof, to the ruin of sin, can we expect a comfortable outcome? It's a rhetorical question. No. If sin is always at work in you trying to kill your soul and you're just passive in how you deal with it, he's saying you, you just might as well expect you're going to get killed in the end. It's going to go really bad for you. He goes on to say, there is not a day that sin foils or is foiled, prevails or is prevailed upon, and it will be so while we live in this world. Let no men think to kill sin with few, easy, or gentle strokes. He goes on to, to paraphrase it saying this. Here's how you need to approach sin. You get your hands around the neck of sin and you don't let go until that thing has stopped breathing. That's how you approach it. Now, let me just ask you in your life right now, is that how you're approaching sin? All sin broadly, but this sin in particular. Is that your approach to it? Is that how serious you are with it? Man, I, this is a moment where just divine grace needs to meet all of us to wake us up out of our cultural haze and to produce in us a real seriousness about this. I had a guy, he, um, he brought me this phone at the end of the first service. I mean, that's like an iPhone. And that thing just got destroyed at some point along like the last couple of hours. And, and he brought that iPhone up and saying, this is how serious I am with my sin. And I don't know what it needs to look like for you. I'm just saying it needs to look that crazy. That crazy. So just take a look at your life. Is it look that crazy? If not, listen to this. If not, it's because we're crazy, not Jesus. It's because we're not seeing with the sort of clarity that Jesus sees with. He's saying you need to get absolutely crazy. No half measures when you're dealing with this in your life. And lastly, and we'll be done here. When you're thinking about how do you apply this commandment or really all of the commandments, here's, here's one thing we always need to keep in mind when we're applying these commandments is we always need to remember the good news of Jesus, don't we? I, it, I've been here at the, the end of every you know, commandment. Have I studied them? It, the, every commandment will take you to the brink of despair. It takes you on the cliff of despair and you're like, man, it feels hopeless. I might as well just jump. And end it all. You know, it takes you right there to the edge of the cliff. And that's what the law is meant to do in our life. It's meant to take us right up to that cliff. But listen, it's, the law is not meant to leave us in despair. The law is meant to leave us at the feet of Jesus. That's where the law is meant to take us. Right to Jesus where hope in the midst of our sin and brokenness can be found. And, and ironically, today we get to finish with communion. And communion is a visible representation and a visible reminder of the good news of Jesus. And when we're taking communion, let me just give you two of the many things communion is reminding us of. One thing communion reminds us of is our relationship with God is no longer based on our ability to keep the commandments. It's based now on Jesus' perfect record, his perfect commandment-keeping life. That's what our relationship with God is based on now. Communion is meant to remind us of that, that everywhere we have failed, everywhere we have broken the seventh commandment, that Jesus has always kept the seventh commandment for us. Now just feel that for a minute. If you're in Christ, God no longer looks at you through the lens of your commandment breaking. He now looks at you through the lens of Jesus's commandment keeping. And all of our commandment breaking, all of our adulterating, all of that 
2,000 years ago on the cross came crashing down upon the shoulders of Jesus, absolutely pulverizing him. In a very real sense, Jesus was bloodied on the cross so that you and I could be restored to the appropriate and faithful bride of God Almighty. It restores us to that sort of a relationship where we can know now for the rest of our life because of Jesus, we can be fully known by God and fully loved and accepted by God. Isn't that great news? Communion reminds us that our relationship with God is no longer based on our performance. Our rightness before God is no longer based on our commandment keeping, but on Jesus' commandment keeping. And for some of us, we feel like we have addressed these particular sins of the seventh commandment 10,000 times in our life. Producing this feeling of, God, can I really go to you for the 10,000th time and ask for forgiveness again? Answer, yes, you can. Today would be another great morning for fresh grace to flow into your life. So, so the communion reminds us that our relationship with God is no longer based on our performance, no longer based on our commandment keeping, but on Jesus' commandment keeping. But communion also reminds us not just of God's forgiving grace in our life, but of God's transforming grace in our life. That God can actually make us new people. Do you remember the text that we read um, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10? That the, the penalty for all of our commandment breaking is eternal damnation. Remember that? If you're an idolater, if you're an adulterer, if you're greedy, if you're a swindler, what's he say? You're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And then I love verse 11 though. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11 goes on to say this. And such were some of you. That's the difference grace makes in our life. And such were some of you. But, but here's the difference. Here's what's happened. Here's what's the difference between that old you and this new you. And such were some of you, but you have been washed. You have, you've been sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's transforming grace at work. You were this, but now you're that. I know you still struggle with this, but I'm making you into that. That's the great news of hope in a moment like this, isn't it? That's what communion reminds us of, amen? Let's pray together. I wanna give you just a moment or two to allow the spirit of God to address your heart this morning. And as we begin to approach communion, let me remind you of who communion is for. First of all, it is for the sons and daughters of God. It's for those who, there's been this, this defining and definitive moment in their life where they have turned from their sin. And with the empty hands of faith, they have come to Jesus. Trusting that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is going to make them right before God. That God will, because of just the empty hands of faith, just them bringing their lives and all of its brokenness to God the Father, it's trusting that God the Father will apply the perfect record of Jesus to our account. All of our sin, pardon, now we are seen as perfected in Jesus for the rest of eternity. Communion is for those people. So if you have never had that sort of definitive moment in your life where you have turned from your sin and turned to Jesus, can, can we just beg you, this is the morning to take Jesus. 
We would love for you to take communion with us. But first, take Jesus this morning. Surrender your life. Give your life to him. And right now, God Almighty will save you. Right now, God Almighty will change you, transform you. Begin the process of that working itself out in your life. So if that's you this morning, as we begin to take communion, we'll have a few of our guys over at the prayer table in the back of the room. Come over and let them know that God is working in you that, in that sort of a way this morning. They would love to celebrate that with you. They'd love to pray for you in that way, begin to walk beside you in that way. Now here's the second thing we could say about who communion is for. It is for the sons and daughters of God, those who have been rescued and saved and redeemed by God who are now, right now, in right standing with God. In other words, if there's any known sin in their life, they have and are repenting of that sin. They're not harboring that. They're not keeping that in the dark. They're bringing that to the light, confessing that to God, confessing that to community, making a break from their sin, throwing their life upon Jesus. I want to ask you, marriage, are you doing that in your marriage? All sin that's there to own, you're owning that. You're confessing that to, to God who you've offended to. Maybe it's your spouse who you've offended. Throwing then your life upon Jesus where forgiveness and transformation can be found. In particular with pornography and sexual immorality and sexual sin, are you, are you doing that? Turning from your sin, throwing your life upon Jesus. Before you take communion, that needs to happen. And th this is how we do communion here. We, we come up, we've got two tables in the front, one in the back. You grab the bread, dip it in the juice, and then you eat the bread. And that is communion for us this morning. So Father, I pray that you would help all of us in this room. God, we need grace this morning. We need help from you this morning. For marriages that are struggling marriage where there is cracks, maybe even crevices. God, we pray for your redemptive grace. God, I pray that you would soften men's heart in this room, ladies' hearts in this room. God, you would make us pliable. God, you would put in us the desire to honor and serve you with everything in us. So God, I pray for that as it's applied to marriages. God, I pray for that as it's applied to pornography and adultery in the heart. God, that you would give us a seriousness. God, that you would grace us and gift this room with conviction for sin. God, that you would take your scalpel and, and use it to stab us right in the heart as an act of grace from you, a loving Father, to bring us out of the haze, out of the normality of our sin, to see that it's grievous to you. God, that you would lead us to confession. God, that you would lead us to repentance where where transformation and, and refreshing grace can be found today, this morning, right now. So God, would you visit us in that sort of a way? It's in your good name that we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.